coming up on Life is a Festival. So making a life like a festival, why I specifically use this language is when you arrive at a festival, you're having a great weekend. You are set up for joy. You're set up for connection. You know that you're surrounded by people who share common interests with you have a common humanity, and you're ready to enjoy art, to participate, to connect with others, this is an open-hearted, experimental, expressive mode of living. And that mode of living is available in all of life. It's available when we're in prosperous times. It's also available when we're in difficult times. To grieve with an open heart is a festival life. It's open. It's saying yes to what is. Yes, yes, yes. That is the festival life. And the opposite of a festival life is to be closed and to be limited by your fears. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only Is life still a festival when there are no festivals for the foreseeable future, when we can't even gather, you know, when we must stay six feet apart at all times, when we are resigned to our homes, if we are the most privileged, and for those who have no homes, for those who are sick, who've lost their jobs, for those full of grief and terror, at this global pandemic moving through our, our bodies, through our nations, through our psyches? Is it really time to hold the flame of a festival in our hearts? I've been thinking a lot about this, about whether this podcast is appropriate, whether this framing of life's pleasures and joys could be medicine in these moments. I was so lucky to have a conversation with Niels. I'm sorry, Niels, I still can't pronounce your last name. A Swedish friend I met when I was in Stockholm on his podcast, World of Wisdom, formerly called The Dying Podcast. And we spoke about life as a festival. And it's the most precise conversation I've ever had about the ethos of this podcast. And while the conversation is not all about coronavirus and the painful externalities of this global pandemic. I feel that it is the best articulation of the philosophy of this podcast and indeed the philosophy of my life. We talk about all the different metaphors for a life lived fully expressed, whether that is a life that is cultivated like a garden or a life that is sung like a song or in the words of Jim Henson, a life like a movie where you write your own ending and you keep believing and you keep pretending. And I think that now is a time to hold that festival flame in our hearts, of course with great humility and with service to those most vulnerable. I believe we still can live the open-hearted experimental joy of a festival from our homes, on our Zoom calls, in the personal protective gear that we donate from our Burning Man bags in the ways we're imagining a new society on the other side of this incredible, incredible global event. Dear listener, if you've been with this show for a long time or if you've just joined us, I invite you to please share your experience. Reach out to me personally reach out to the show, join the Life is a Festival group on Facebook, and let's talk about how to keep our hearts full of joy, even as we hold space for all the enormous grief, 
that the world is feeling and that we're all feeling. Thank you, Niels, for having me on your show. I would highly recommend listening to the World of Wisdom podcast. The links will be in the show notes. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to express my deep conviction that we are, no matter what circumstances, and in fact, even because of our difficult circumstances, we are growing. Our boundaries are expanding into horizons, and joy is still available. Because at the end of the day, a life that is like a festival is a life of connection. And that's what we need now more than ever. All right. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of World of Wisdom podcast, formerly known as a dying podcast. And this is the third time we're trying to restart this conversation <laughs> with a lot of people my- online. Yeah, a lot of people online these days. And my guest today, who is also online, is Eamon Armstrong. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well today. It's a little cloudy in San Francisco. It's a little bit of a cloudy morning, and sometimes that affects my mood. But I did a really full morning routine today. Did some reading, some writing, some meditating. Got Got my body moving. So, yeah, I'm feeling personally in my body and in my immediate sovereignty, I feel good. That's a that's a good place to be on a day like this. So this is we're recording this March twenty fourth, twenty twenty, which I think is is worth pointing out because we're in the middle of this pandemic, which is impacting absolutely everything around us, including ourselves. So depending on when we release this, which could be instantly or later, it's good to know when we recorded this. Things are moving very quickly. And here in the US, we are really poised on the precipice of our potential overwhelm here. Uh, what's happening in New York is New York's the big hotspot right now. I'm in I'm in San Francisco and we've been we've had an official order to shelter in place for one week. And prior to that, a lot of my community, which are a lot of members of the Burning Man community, a lot of, you know, first adopter tech people, we've been quarantining ourselves for a bit longer than that. And I adopted a cat. In the middle of this? Well, just before it. Just I, before. I, well, I, I, saw, I saw the writing on the wall, figured I was going to be in my home for a long time and wanted a new bunk mate. So I adopted a beautiful little tortoise shell kitten from the pound and rescued her. And now she cowers under my bed as she gets to know this space. That's beautiful. And, and also perhaps, well, you're not hoarding cats, at least you're, you're done with one. No, I'm not a cat hoarder. Although there, there's kind of the archetypal cat hoarder. And I'm sure that typically she, but she or he is actually probably weathering this crisis a little bit better than, than those without pets. So I don't think there's a problem. There's enough cats to go around right now. We do not have a shortage of cats. So if you want to hoard cats, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to be hoarding. <laughs> I mean, it all depends, right? So anyway, uh, we met in Stockholm a while back uh, and have been trying to get on this conversation for a while, the way things tend to be. Uh, and here we are. And, and you have a podcast of your own. I do. Yes. Life is a festival. I do indeed. Yeah, I have Life is a Festival, and I'm I'm actually going to be launching a new podcast for psychedelic therapists later on in the spring. But for now, Life is a Festival is my main gig, and I've been doing that for about a year and a half, and I love it. Cool. So, so tell us about that as a starting point, and and as we mentioned before starting this recording, life is not really a festival right now, is it? Life is more of a ceremony right now. But the principles that guide life as a festival and my personal philosophies around living a blossomed and expressed and connected life are still absolutely in play, even though we are not having the incubator of these grand congregations. So essentially, I've been going to Burning Man for 10 years. That's kind of my starting place in festival culture. And then I ended up being the community builder and ultimately the creative director and face of a company called Fest 300, which was a guide to the world's 300 best festivals. And with that 
job, I got to go around the world and meet all these incredibly creative people and attend these festivals and write about them and learn in these environments. And I learned that festivals defined broadly as any kind of gathering around art and culture. So film festivals, food festivals, but most especially for me, creative participatory music festivals, a la Burning Man, but also a lot of other kinds of gatherings around the world. These spaces are incubators for growth, both personal growth and spiritual development, as well as community and service opportunities for growth. And I see them as incubators and accelerators for for lack of a better term, global awakening. I think that that term's a little, can get a little granola, but these are hot spots for people to wake up to their own divinity and express themselves in the world as healing themselves and healing others and beings of service. But all of this, and this is very important, in a fabulous way. So that's what I'm super into. I'm into the fabulous personal growth of a festival. And so after my role with Fest 300, I went and traveled, I did some ceremonies, some initiations, some, I did a Vipassana, I did some really interesting things, I did an Aboga initiation. And then I wanted to launch a new project that focused on how we integrate these peak experiences. And so Life as a Festival isn't a podcast about festivals per se, it's really a podcast about making your life like a festival. Basically, I interview leaders in festivals and psychedelic culture and beyond about how they make their lives like a festival and how my audience can integrate, whether it is a psychedelic ceremony or a grand adventure and, or a burn, how they can take that and weave that into their lives to be more joyful and spontaneous and expressed. Wow. So... um I get a lot of questions popping in my head based on, on what you just shared. So one is the, the, the close integration, which is not a given, but in my mind, and I guess in your mind, for the kind of festivals we're now talking about, the close integration between psychedelics and festivals. Yeah, as an open-ended question, like where are we on that? Why is that, is that the case? Why do you believe that is so? And, and, and where do you think we are? You know, I think that a festival is actually a good metaphor for the way that a psychedelic experience loosens the hold of the default mode network. So at a festival, you're in a space of collective effervescence. And collective effervescence is a phrase by the sociologist Emil Durkheim, and it refers to a sort of bubbling up that occurs when people have gathered with a certain kind of intentionality and have a shared experience. This could be like at a sports game, obviously a festival, a space where there's kind of a community experience of emotion and idea and perspective that's kind of rippling through a body of people. That to me maps really well onto what happens to the brain when someone is under the influence of a psychedelic, which is, and are, are you familiar with the sort of general pop psychedelic science at the moment? Is that I, on your radar? I, yeah, definitely. It's 100%. And okay. It's been featured yep. a bit I, on this uh, podcast, but if there's anything in particular you'd like to highlight, feel free to do that. Yeah, well, uh, just to complete this metaphor here, and if your listeners, those of you listening at the moment, um, are unfamiliar with this, the, the scientific consensus around the broad category of psychedelic medicine generally is that it reduces activity in what's called the default mode network, which is essentially you thinking about you, you thinking about the past and the future. It's what your brain does, uh, the regions that form a network while you are doing nothing but just sort of thinking. And psychedelics reduce activity in that network and create activity in regions that don't usually form networks, which is kind of what uh, accounts for things like synesthesia or temporal distortion your brain is kind of talking to itself in a way that it it's not its default way to do so. And I feel like festivals are similar to that for a body of people. When you are in a festival, particularly a participatory festival, a decommodified space like Burning Man, a space where there's 
room for more I-thou relationships than I-it relationships. So those are relationships between people as opposed to transactional relationships. When you're in an intentional space where that happens, you're, you're in a sense loosening the default mode of humanity, which is kind of commerce and consumption and this kind of transactional dynamic. So in a festival environment, there's a loosening of these default patterns of our sort of atomized way of being in the world and a collective effervescence that maps really well onto the psychedelic experience. In total, I would say that people do psychedelics at festivals. People who like psychedelics tend to like certain kinds of festival culture. They really go together in the way that they help us grow and heal and connect with each other. I, I really like that analogy. So that would basically make make any festival goer a neuron in a brain under the influence of a psychedelic. Yes. And particularly, I must emphasize participatory festivals. And I think that you can find this kind of collective effervescence at Coachella, for example. But it is impeded by hyper-transactional consumer vibe, because that's more the default world. And so burns, I think, are an even better space to see this this process in play. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. So my other question that, that came to me is, based on where we are right now in this moment in time, uh, in this pandemic, in this lockdown, where basically everything is moving online, it seems, and the way you describe the importance of festivals, which I fully agree with, it's it's been what has led me onto this journey is very much the burns that kickstarted all of, of my personal exploration of, of consciousness and myself and the world. But now, and we don't know for how long this is going to last, but it's giving us an opportunity to sort of play around with and also the challenge of how do we come together? How do we create these kinds of ceremonies and gatherings when we actually can't meet? physically. Yeah, well, so first of all, life is a series of oscillations. There are yin seasons, there are yang seasons. And to me, a festival is very much a yang experience. And this particular cultural moment is an extreme yin experience. Yes, there's a lot of anxiety. And there are people who are absolutely, particularly medical professionals, blessed be to those people and the work they're doing, who are in a very yang state. But the general kind of body of humanity is in an extremely yin place. We're in our homes, we're we're forced to slow down. We have we can distract ourselves with our various addictions, social media, television, alcohol, but ultimately we're in a yin space of quiet and almost an invariable time of going inward. And I think that's good. You know, when you have a long yin period, the yang that blossoms forth will be new and fresh in a way. So the question of what do festivals mean right now and what how do we achieve the value that we achieved in festival culture in this moment i think first of all we're in child's pose you know we are in a yin time and we need to lean into that this is a sacred time this is a, a liminal time this is a time of initiation transformation so for those who discovered uh, a more intentional way of being in festival culture. There's a way to use this in a ceremonial way that that pairs really well with that. So for those who have touched on the kind of blossoming that I'm referring to at a festival, it's not a leap to use this time as medicine. For those who haven't touched on that, there's a loss in in that there's not the festival experience for them now. And obviously, there's there are there are many other <clears throat> major losses in terms of people who are throwing festivals, producers, artists. There's a lot of economic pressure and pain right now. But just in terms of the value that festivals have as incubators for personal growth, that journey isn't as available to people who've never touched it. But for those who have, this is kind of a yin counterpoint to it. So as far as the personal development is concerned, I think that we, we, you know, we always work with what is, and sometimes that's a beautiful burn. Sometimes that's staying at home and playing with your new adopted kitty, which is what I'm doing, and meditating a lot. So in, in 
having done all of these conversations around how to make your life a festival, and and this is like also sort of a big question in a way, uh, like the stuff you've learned researching that, how do you actually make your life a festival? And it's also sort of a 200 question. So it, it also ties back into this moment. So generally speaking, how do you make your life a festival? And in this particular moment, how do you make your life a festival? Mm, great question. How do you make your life a festival? And I should have an elevator pitch dialed answer to this considering really that's should. my whole focus. I shouldn't you know, but it's one of those things where making your life a festival is like cultivating an exquisite garden. And so I want to tell you how to fertilize the sunflowers and then I want to tell you how to without using pesticides, control um, the pests in the garden. I want to, you, you understand what I'm saying here? I want to tell, the, the life that is a festival, I want to tell you about all the minutia. Yeah. But I guess what I'll tell you is that making a life like a festival is a lot like creating a garden. Are you familiar with the book Finite and Infinite Games? No, I don't think so. Oh, it is one of my favorite books. And that book essentially lines up life in two ways. You can act as you can live life as if you're playing a finite game where you're trying to win, or you can live life as if you're playing an infinite game where you're trying to create more games. And living a life like a festival is the same as living an infinite game, playing an infinite game, where the goal is to expand boundaries into horizons. The goal is to not discover the fixed self that you've always been, but create a new self similar to a flower blossoming by exploring what is most authentically true with you, presenting that out into the world, and then letting the world cultivate your growth. It's, it's very much like a garden. And so making a life like a festival, why I specifically use this language and why I think about this is when you arrive at a festival, you're having a great weekend or a great week. You you are set up for joy. You're set up for connection. You know that you're surrounded by people who share common interests with you, um, have a common humanity, and you're ready to enjoy art, to participate, to connect with others. This is an open-hearted, experimental, expressive mode of living. And that mode of living is available in all of life. It's available when we're in prosperous times, it's also available when we're in difficult times. To grieve with an open heart is a festival life. It's open. It's saying yes to what is. Yes, yes, yes. That is the festival life. And the opposite of a festival life is to be closed and to be limited by your fears. Not Fears are great. I, I, I think I'm afraid of lots of things, but to be hemmed in and limited by your fears, that is the opposite of a festival life. And the final thing I'll say about life as a festival is I've identified a beautiful tra trajectory in my own experience in relating to festivals and ceremony and intentional congregation, which is first we party and we party because it feels good. And when we party and it feels good, we notice that our life, while not partying, doesn't feel as good. It feels so good to be with my friends doing MDMA and dancing to Bass Nectar in, you know, 2008. That felt good. And that I, allowed me to identify that I didn't feel good in these other places of my life. So we go from partying to healing. I need to heal what feels so good. Bad. And it's not just healing my physical body, my, my emotions, my mental health, but also healing a society. And then through healing, we recognize that ultimately we are here to serve and we are healing ourselves and healing others. So there's this party, heal, serve trajectory. And not that party goes away. You still party, but you bring your you bring that party into your whole life through healing and serving and being your most expressed self. And that is the trajectory of making life like a festival. Wow, and you just described my own experience with Burning Man <laughs> perfectly. Thank right, you. That right, gave, that's... That gave me a new layer and, to that. And for a lot of people like yourself who've gone to Burning Man and then found themselves in leadership roles, it's, it's so much that trajectory. Because it's by approaching your own healing 
looking at these tender places in yourself that you find your gifts for the world. This is a, a well-worn expression, but it's true. In the cave we fear lies the treasure we seek. It's a Joseph Campbell line. And our wounds become our medicine. That which we're most afraid of or ashamed of or scared of or hurt by, we alchemize in our being into what we give to others. And that alchemization is the most splendid blooming of the flower that we each are in this life. It's beautiful. Beautiful and very, very, very true. So, yeah, I want to get get even deeper into this garden analogy because I think it, it, it makes total sense. It's also very beautiful. So if, you, if you're a person that currently feel that you don't have a garden, you're locked up in a concrete environment <laughs> in a shitty little apartment, which is uh, your worldview, let's call it that. What are, before you go into these, you know, fertilizing sunflowers, <laughs> how do you even, what, what, what can be like a first couple of steps if you're stuck in your fear to even remotely start creating this garden for yourself? Mm, thank you for asking that. I'm going to answer your question by speaking to anyone who's listening right now who identifies with what you've just said. So if you are listening and you see no garden, hmm, there is no way that I could possibly understand the pain that you feel the loneliness, the disconnection. I have felt my own version of that. I have been hmm, in deep wells of depression where I was struggling through this empty, ongoing, muddy swamp of everything being wrong. I've had my version of that especially around 18, 19 years old, really a deep, deep pool of depression. But that doesn't mean that I can understand what you feel. And it would be violently arrogant for me to tell you how you might emerge. So I don't want to say, do this, you know, What I would say is that, in my belief, no one is starting their personal garden with nothing growing there, because you are alive, and there is something growing there, something magical inside of you. And maybe it's, right now, it's the tiniest germination, and it's hard to even make out. But there's this beautiful Buddhist idea of the lotus blossom being such a profound symbol for, uh, for the Buddhists because it comes out of the murky muck and then this splendid flower blooms. So if you are feeling that there's no garden, I want to be very careful about um, asserting myself into the, your life and those beliefs. But I do believe that there is something germinating inside you. And that tiny little germination is no less beautiful than the bird of paradise that will ultimately emerge. It's no less beautiful than a splendid poppy. It's no less beautiful than what it will someday become. All the potential is in it right now, and it is with you right now. So your question, Niels, was, what do I say to someone who has no garden? There's no such thing as someone who has no garden. What would I say to someone who believes they have no garden? Call me. <laughs> Let's talk. I want to listen. Tell me about the no garden. I believe that there's a seed germinating. I believe that. But that's not necessarily what's true for you. So, yeah. Let's let's talk. I mean, literally, let's talk. Because I, I've set up something 
for this pandemic where I have the Calendly app and I have two hours a day, Monday through Friday, where people can make half an hour appointments with me. And I post it once a week and I say, if you need to talk, make an appointment with me. And so I'm inviting members of my community who are having a lot of things coming up for them right now to check in with me and we do a call. And, you know, it doesn't need to be someone who's having a hard time. Friends of mine have signed up. But yeah, I would love to listen to what it feels like for you to be without a garden, without trying to change it and without trying to convince you that there is something germinating inside you. Wow. Thank you. And that is that to me is sharing your medicine. It's 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 beautiful when a person can really express that level of sincerity that you just did, just in how you slow down, how you focus, how you really bring I really feel you when you express yourself like that. So thank you for doing that. And that is truly sharing your medicine. And also I'm actually doing exactly the same thing, offering free coaching online these days. And basically what you said about there's no way either one of us could can understand a person listening in exactly what they're going through. There's simply no way. And and we don't have we don't hold answers for anyone else, but we can hold space. And and when we listen, like you just invited people to to speak to you and, and you will listen and and ask questions. That is truly the key for for anyone whether you have a garden or not it's when we're asked questions and that gives us it allows us to actually answer those questions now we we answer them for ourselves equally as much as we do for for someone else and that that to me is the process of asking questions and and looking at things and facing yourself and your circumstances and 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 and, and truly looking at it and feeling it full on and in there equally, equally certain and sure that we all carry that seed that holds an entire beautiful garden within it already now. And it's when we actually take time to look for that seed and when we're held by others, like you just did for anyone listening, it allows us to find it. And when we find Mm -hmm. it, it already knows what to do. Yeah, I, I love holding. I love the idea of, of holding space. And I I learned actually very specifically about holding space doing work with the Zendo Project. Are you familiar with the Zendo Project? I am, but I'm pretty sure everyone listening is not. Um, so the Zendo Project is a part of MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. And the Zendo Project creates a safe space at festivals and similar events for people having a difficult psychedelic experience. And I went to Envision Festival in Costa Rica in 2015. And I went as a journalist when I was still working with Fest 300. And I was embedded. I camped with the Zendo Project. I did trip-sitting psychedelic peer support for the duration of the festival. And then I wrote an article about it. That's really what kind of changed my perspective about how to show up for someone else. And for me, it was actually an interestingly gendered experience. My experience of my my mother and father, and even more so my personal experience of the forms of mother or father, perhaps the archetypal forms of mother and father, is that the father is an active problem solver. And when you go to the father with a problem, the father says, well, this is what you do. And then you do what the father says. The mother is the space holder, where you go to the mother and say, I have this problem. And the mother says, oh, that sounds very hard. That's, let me hold you. They're there. It's going to be okay. And these, and that's not how men and women are. These are just my own kind of experiences of archetypal energy, my own experiences with my own parents. But I was very much aligned with the paternal problem solving, which is, if you got a problem, you know, I'll solve it, you know? The space holding is so maternal for me. And actually, whilst sitting in the Zendo tent at Envision Festival, it allowed me to connect, and this was at a time when I was exploring my gender, allowed me to connect more deeply into the woman in me. And by that, I do not mean my feminine side. I mean the woman in me, the woman version of me, the aspect of myself that is fully feminine, 
fully matronly, fully crone to hold space. And that holding space really is about respecting the sovereignty of another being, respecting their journey, respecting the medicine, you know, and, and you're holding space for someone in a psychedelic experience. So you're respecting that the medicine is allowing their mind to move through what perhaps they hadn't been allowing to move through them prior to that particular moment. And your job is to get them water, help them go to the bathroom, model calm without telling them to be calm, breathing deeply so that they may feel the energy of breathing deeply and just gently and quietly affirm them. And as they tell you of their wild visions and the quest that their soul is on, to not try to lead them across any sort of river that could only be a projection of your own journey, but rather to say, ah, hmm, I understand. Hmm, yeah, that sounds difficult. Hmm, hmm, thank you for sharing that with me. That's the energy of space holding in psychedelic peer support. And the the lessons of that, and also the fact that there's my 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 feminine aspect, my anima, my my womanly energies and being within me, that that's the part of me that guides space holding it was such a tremendous gift that I received from my service as as a psychedelic peer support trip sitter. Wow, thank you for sharing that. It also I can't help but see a similarity from what you just shared with what this entire planet is going through right now. Mm, yeah, deeply. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's we've been in this phase or era of a lot of the, the masculine, a lot of, of the rational, a lot of fixing things and building things and <laughs> solving things. And it's not just me. I see it everywhere. There's a lot of, of talk, a lot of, of energy coming through that we need now to enter uh, an era more more the the womanly the maternal sort of energy which for me also represents space holding it's it's kind of like you know when we give when we give the planet a break it heals itself when we give each other and ourselves a break like we're like we're doing now you know we're stuck in our little huts all, all, all over this planet and for a lot of us that means actually facing ourselves for a while because we can't escape into all of these things that we usually escape into and when that happens we start healing ourselves so it's 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 in a way you could look at this pandemic as this massive space holding experiment <laughs> on a global level so thank you for giving placing that vision in my in my mind and my soul i hadn't seen it exactly like that before so that's that's cool <laughs> I love the idea that there is a global space holding that is being in some ways forced by this virus. I read a, a beautiful article from the Heartward Sanctuary that was titled, What If the Virus is the Medicine? And the authors of that article, and Niels, if you could put that in the show notes so that, because I cannot recall their names in this yeah. moment, and I want to make sure that they are honored for the, their incredible work. They start by saying, and it's so important that in any way that we wax poetic about the positivity, they start by talking about, A, the incredible suffering physically to the bodies of people who are experiencing this virus. Uh, it is profound, and, and it is so tragic. And then B, that a pandemic invariably and always enhances the suffering of those at the margins, both medically and economically. You know, those who are most vulnerable are those who are suffering most now. And we must hold these people and beings around the world who are suffering foremost in our minds. And we must do our best to help those most vulnerable. It is absolutely fundamental. That being accounted for, what if the virus is the medicine? What if this virus moving through the global body is like an ayahuasca or like an iboga? More like an iboga, I would say, based on my experience with iboga. Like an, like a, an initiation. What if we are entering sacred time, a liminal space that is being enforced by an RNA-replicating thing moving through everyone that has come from our close proximity to the through our animal friends through the way that we slaughter and eat them out of that comes this virus that is enforcing this profound and great slowdown 
and we are left in our homes. Someone, there's a meme that was going around that was like, climate change needs to hire coronavirus's publicist. (laughs) But I actually think, I think that coronavirus might be climate change's publicist. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Like this is bitter medicine moving through the global body. And yet it feels like medicine. It's what is being offered up to be healed in this moment. This is sacred time. This is a time, and again, the deepest, deepest respect to those who are most vulnerable and those who are being harmed by this. Foremost in our minds, our service to them. And what if this is the sound of the breaks when we're careening off the cliff that is this global climate catastrophe? What if we go into our little huts around the world and we do some inward work and we go into ceremony, we go into a liminal space of our own transformation and we connect through our global virtual networks with others around the world that are imagining the architecture of a new society similar to the imaginal cells in the chrysalis as the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, the caterpillar that has overconsumed to then enter the liminal space of the chrysalis to become goop where these imaginal cells meet and connect for the architecture of the butterfly. What if that is what's happening now? And then why not make that what's happening now? You know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Let us, let us now get quiet do the work on ourselves, recognize our addictions, recognize our addictions to consumption. I can't use Amazon to send me some shit I don't need right now. I can't do it. It's not possible. I have to read. You know, I have to, everything is so present. This is a sacred time. And for that reason, let it be blessed. You know, let us be blessed in this time. I'm so glad I'm on this. I'm so glad I'm on this podcast because I've been wanting to just like burp out that because I've been talking, I've been having conversations, but I haven't like publicly just really, oh, it's fecund. This is fecund in the global psyche. This is an initiation. This reminds me so much of the initiation I did with the Bwiti people in Gabon using the medicine of Iboga. Time has slowed down and there is nothing but the presence of our physical bodies in these small spaces with so many lessons that we are forced to surrender at the feet of. And everybody, everyone in the world has to do this. Everybody, kicking and screaming, we are going into our homes. Wow, (sighs) that is so profound. And I... Oh, my entire body is just like completely feeling that. So I, I haven't done a bogey yet, but my first ayahuasca ceremony, it really reminds me of that, of that, yeah, initiation, going through hell, basically, and having to face every single aspect of myself, which is humanity. That's what humanity needs to do that right now. And we're doing it as these tiny cells of this larger organism. So each cell actually has, we're forced to it, but it's also an opportunity to fully do that, to like face, face myself. Why am I here? What am I doing here? How, what role am I playing in this whole structure that we call humanity or the planet or, or life? And then for, for humanity itself to just like, oh yeah, this is what we're doing. And we, to your point, which I think is a beautiful one, we have the choice. It doesn't matter. We it doesn't matter if we argue if this is what it is or not. I agree that this is sacred times, one hundred percent. And to me, this is what's happening. It's it's uh, it's it's truly initiation. But we actually have the choice. Uh, it's not about proving if that is what's happening or not. We have the choice to make that be what is happening. And actually, yeah, your analogy with the butterfly is perfect. Let's 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 do our very best to come out of this as butterflies as individual butterflies and as one global butterfly. And and I just want to be clear that while this has been my thinking, it's definitely was crystallized by reading that article. And they use the the butterfly hypothesis quite liberally in that 
in that. So I'd, I'd invite anyone who's listening who really feels the vibe on this to, to check out that, that work from the Heartward Sanctuary. And the other thing that I wanted to say in response to that is, have you been looking at your fucking Facebook feed? Dude, people are just stepping up. I know. Everyone is nicer. I am just seeing so people who are creating virtual wellness studios, people who are checking in with other people. Everybody's like, how are we supporting medical professionals? Burners, do we have unused masks that can be donated? Like, look at the helpers. Thank you, Mr. Rogers. Look at the fucking helpers. It's so inspiring. And this is a marathon. We're going to see, I'm sure, a lot of ugliness, especially from entrenched interests that don't want to die. This is like the ego death in a psychedelic mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Oh. There, you know, and, and Donald Trump is playing the role of the overblown American ego with all of its defensiveness and all of its self-interest. I mean, D- D- Donald Trump, I mean, thank God for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, <laughs> oh my God, what a beautiful perfect articulation of this aspect of our of our collective psyche at the helm you know it's almost like we're in a medicine ceremony we're we're in this like this ego death uh, trajectory and we just have this perfect epitome of the ego desperately trying to control this thing moving through the world while being so self-interested, <laughs> you know, and his self-interest just eclipses what he could, how he could lead in every single step of the way. And what a, what a lesson, what a teacher, you know, what a teacher, Donald Trump right now. And yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, yeah, I don't want him to be president. I mean, come on now. Like, <laughs> but teacher. I fully but, agree. Everyone's a teacher, right? And we have, it's interesting because we have a few of these in the world now. It's like the signal is popping up everywhere. Like it gets embodied into different people, into different organizations. But, but it's like that pain point, that mirror pops up everywhere for us to look at and be like, holy fuck, how did, how did this happen? How did we come to this where we have leaders like this, like Trump and, 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 you know, the Trumpians, but it's just a mirror, right? I, I fully agree. It's a, it's a perfect teacher. And if you, if you choose to look at life, I mean, we've spoken about life as a festival now and also as a garden. And <laughs> I like to choose, I like to look at life as a, as a, as a story, as a book or a movie mm. where I'm playing all the roles. And it's, it's, it's just such a beautiful story, everything that's happening. And we get to experience this in like full 4D or whatever it is that the human experience is like. And it's if you just choose to look at it like that, it's the best story ever told. And we, we actually mm. want it to be like this. We need this friction. We need something to fight for. We need something to fear. We need, we need to fear losing something or else this wouldn't mean anything. So it's like it's, it's just a... It's a blockbuster movie with, mm. with Trump in one of the leading roles. Uh, are you uh, are are you a fan of Jim Henson? Jim Henson who created Henson. the Muppets and Sesame Street and oh my goodness, Jim Henson, ah. one of the magic ones. The very end of the Muppet movie, Kermit the Frog sings a line that has been my bio on all of my things. It's my favorite line. It's at the end of, if you go on my website, it's at the bottom of my website. It's on my Facebook. It is my favorite line. It's just so great. In the Muppet movie, Kermit the Frog has started in a lily pad somewhere in the East, and he wants to get to Hollywood. And he enlists the help of Fozzie Bear, and they do this road trip to get to Hollywood because he just, he wants to be a star and he wants to shine. And honestly, that's been me. My life has been, I've wanted to take this trip to shine. And it's so beautiful. Oh, and I'm feeling it. It's truth right now. You know, you think you're going on this road trip to get to Hollywood so you can be a star. But the story was the trip. You know, the Muppet movie is not about when he gets to Hollywood. It's about the journey he takes with his friend to get there. And and it's to what you're saying about the life that's lived in that way. And at the very end, he sings this song and it's so precious. And he goes, he goes, life's like a movie, write your own ending, keep 
believing, keep pretending we've done just what we set out to do. Thanks to the lovers, the dreamers, and you. And he says that life's like a movie. Write your own ending. Keep believing. Keep pretending. And that's that's just just do it. Keep believing. Keep pretending. And if you're in that place where you don't see the garden, and I've been, I've had three major depressive episodes in my life. I know that I will have more. That depression will visit me again before it is my time to go. And depression is a teacher too. I've so much of my work has been a dance with my own black dog. You know, there will be a time I know when the color will leave the room. And I must keep believing and keep pretending. I must keep imagining that this is a moment in such a grand adventure. And this moment may be a murky swamp and I can't see my way out. And I may be desperately and totally alone. But just keep believing, keep pretending. And on the other side of those deep troughs, I... My second major depressive episode happened when I was 24, and I spent a year, I was living in Oakland, working at Borders Bookstore, playing guitar. And for a year, I was so depressed that all I did was work at this bookstore, drink alcohol, which I don't drink anymore, smoke weed, play World of Warcraft, and write songs on my guitar. And the the songs were like, that's what kept me going. I would just... I would be in so much pain and so much darkness and so much like emptiness. And I couldn't kill myself because if I killed myself, it would hurt too many people. Like I couldn't imagine my, my mother being at my grave. Like I couldn't, you know, too much guilt. I, I had too much guilt to kill myself. But I just felt like I was 24 years old and I was sure my life was over. I was sure I'd failed. I was never going to be a movie star. It was all just a mess. But I played guitar and... I just kind of kept going. And eventually, playing guitar led to starting a band, um, a silly dance band called I Can Dress Myself. And we took that band to Burning Man. And in that deep pit of of just just total desolation that was where my mental health had had taken me, where my ancestral pain that that expresses itself through um through depression and anxiety, where that teacher had taken me was this total stillness. Uh, You know what? I wasn't thinking that I would go here, but it's perfect in terms of the great slowdown because it very much was that for me personally. It was like the depression, much like this virus, had taken me to such a yin place and such a quiet place. I couldn't do anything but play guitar. And that playing guitar in that moment led to the band took me to Burning Man, took me to Fest 300, took took me to this glorious adventure of flying all around the world to meet these incredible people and, and write about it and connect people to each other and ultimately be in service to all these people. And that came out of, gosh, I think I may be even answering the question you asked earlier about the person without the garden, because I definitely didn't have a garden at that time, but I did have a guitar. And, and that was and the scene. I, and that was the seed. Yeah. Yeah. I still play some of those songs sometimes. Wow. Wow. And that with this, in a, in a previous episode, I, I, I did a sharing around uh, how life is a song. Uh, mm. And you can really look at it like that because everything is frequencies, right? And vibrations. Mm. And, and, and a good song, you know, you want to feel it. It can't be one note that just goes on forever and then it's over. <laughs> well, it could be, but it's a shitty song. And, and, while looking at life as a song, then everything that happens and everyone and everything around you are just different instruments playing different notes. And you are your own instrument and you can actually choose how you want to interact with all of these other, you know, sound bites or frequencies around you. So it's your choice how you want to play with life. If there's like a somber tune coming in, do I want to join that? Do I want to enhance it? Do I want to offer something else? It's to me a beautiful analogy. And what you just said, and like you're you're in this yin space and all you have is your guitar <laughs> and that is the seed of the garden and what you did was you kept playing and that's what you do right 
you just keep playing your life as a song, whether it's through a guitar or something else, but but you keep going. And, and from there, that seed will blossom into a garden eventually. Well, and, and if you listen to any great piece of music, it's full of tension and release. It's full of dissonance that's then resolved. I don't want to live a life that's happy birthday. Like, I don't want to be playing this. I don't want to be playing happy birthday as my life you know <laughs> that would be the worst sound happy birthday <laughs> to you like i don't want that life i would much rather be on the edge of the pit of despair and in the final moment grab a a, a, a rope to swing myself into some other feather bed that i was totally unexpected not expecting i would much rather live that that's why i still don't take antidepressants i had a period where after my first depressive episode i had a period where i took antidepressants and there's nothing wrong with them but for me they kind of numbed and i would much rather have my yoga my meditation my annoyingly strict diet <laughs> all the all the different little dance moves and little you know, not Dan, I have like, it's like I'm fencing with my depression and I have all these little tools where I'm like, well, now I'm working with a trauma therapist. How do you like that depression? And depression is like, oh, fuck. Okay, well, <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> you know, like my little, my, my little dances with depression. I'll tell you the number one thing that reframed my relationship with depression was just seeing it as a teacher and being like, well, this is the most ruthless, strict teacher in my life and I do not want to take her classes but oh when i get out of there when i'm on spring break i sure do fucking love it so yeah life is also a teacher I, all of these beautiful metaphors wow thank you amen beautiful i think that's i think that's a good ending point i think we hit the hour pretty much on target which is i just feel that's Perfect. We've gone through life as a festival, a garden, a, a movie, a song, a teacher. Am I missing anything here? <laughs> a vi- I, I mean, a virus. <laughs> a virus. I don't know if we're living life as a virus, but we're living life as the earth. You know, we are not on the earth. We are of the earth. Yeah. This will be my. I'll, I'll take you over an hour in a cheeky way because I, I got to get. I got to. I got to give you this one, which is. The most valuable thing that I ever learned in ceremony, in a psychedelic ceremony, was the visceral lived experience of being a part of something bigger than myself. And it happened in, I've done, I've sat in a number of ayahuasca ceremonies, and this was in, I think, like the second one that I sat in. But essentially, I was thinking, uh, I was grieving, I was grieving a breakup, and um, then I was grieving myself in the breakup. And then I was invited to, I, I was kind of given this inclination to grieve for the planet. How could it be that the Earth's most glorious creation in my mind at that time, which was, the, which was humans, could turn on her so viciously? How could that be? And I had this invitation, as one often gets in a medicine space, which is, well, Eamon, do you want to know what the Earth thinks of you? And I was like, uh... Uh, and I was lying on my side and I was all ayahuasca sad. And I was like, okay, I better sit up for this. Yes, I want to know what the earth thinks of me. And I sat up on my cushion and I had this vision of a serpent that kind of emerged from myself, but I couldn't quite see that it had emerged. So the serpent was dancing in front of me like that. And the serpent was speaking to me, but not verbally. Um, and the serpent would affect certain visages. Uh, so at one point, it was my mother. At one point, it was Ellen DeGeneres, which I loved. It was a very feminine serpent. And the serpent said, essentially, really simply, what the earth thinks of you is what you think of you, because you are the earth. Hmm. And and I was like, oh! I, and it wasn't, you know, y- you hear we are all one all the time. And it can be the pithiest of, of slogans. But to feel it in that open psychedelic state, to feel, truly feel we are all one. I was raised up into the clouds, and the serpent was like an accordion in every direction, like this sort of kaleidoscope of faces, and it was every possible deity. And I saw this serpent that had emerged from me, had blown up into any possible expression of the divine. 
And my cat was there, my sweet Ella, who has since passed away. And now I have a new cat, Nina, that I just adopted. But my sweet cat, Ella, was there. And I was like, Ella, what are you doing? What do you, what do you know about the oneness of all things? And she's like, dude, I'm a cat. I, I know about this all the time. Yeah, like I'm I'm here all the time. You're the one who is choosing to think that you're an individual. Like I don't I don't have to do that. That's not my that's not my vibe. And I was like, wow, well, I'm sorry I clip your nails. I know that bugs you. And she's like, I, I get it. You know, it's fine. But but it ended. That moment ended, and it ended so dramatically. And everything suddenly withered. And I found myself, this was one of my most vibrant visions I've ever experienced in my life a dream or a ceremony or any vision. This is one of the most vivid. Everything died. And I was sitting in the back of a tavern across from death. And this was like classic Grim Reaper, skeleton in a hood, death. Everything had died and it was me and death. And I was fucking pissed. And I was like, why did you ruin it? Why did you ruin it? You fucker. Everything was perfect. My cat was there. I was with God, and you ruined it. And Death just laughed at me, and wasn't like a dick, but it's just like, ah, like laughed at me, like such a typical response. And Death, Death's like, listen, I can't tell you why. That's not my job. But what I can tell you is, I'm not the end of life. I'm not some opposite of life. If it weren't for me, nothing would be new. Do you like the flowers that grow? Yeah, me. That's me. Do you like the the refreshing of every day? That's me. So you're angry at the wrong dude. And I I, I can't, I, you know, at this moment, I can't, it was, it, the way that this entity of death presented itself to me was, of course, so profound, but also silly. But there was a moment of like, oh, I get it. Okay, you're not so bad, Death. You're just part of the whole beautiful wheel of it all. And I walked away from that experience. And of course, you know, it's ayahuasca. So at a certain point, the journey was over. And I was just kind of cuddling myself, thinking about how I should be nicer to people. But I walked away from that experience with not just the idea that death must be welcomed and we must be in relation to death, but that all suffering and hardship has its place. And coming back to the idea of antidepressants, I don't want to numb anything. When it's time for me to release this physical aim and body and open my consciousness up to whatever is next, I want to meet that with the totality of my being. And so right now in this moment, there's so much going on in the world and it's so scary and but we have the opportunity to meet it with the totality of our being and that that's what life is a festival is meet life with the totality of your being and it will reward you with a festival fuck yeah wow beautiful beautiful spoken like a master man amazing oh thank you and also really i mean it ties into well, you know what the, the previous name of this podcast was, <laughs> and it was partly because of my own relationship with death. And in a summarized version of my journey there was that first there was fear of death, and then I realized that fear was actually anger. What you just mm. described, was like, I was fucking pissed. Mm. That was it. And I hadn't, I hadn't embraced and integrated that emotion within myself. I didn't allow myself to get angry. So I realized after a lot of work that it's actually me being really fucking pissed at death. That was it. And then and then taking the next step as well as you did too, understanding that well, death is life, life and death is death, and and it it it's uh it just it has to be there or nothing would exist. And then I wasn't pissed anymore, and then I wasn't as afraid anymore. So it's just mm. like this simple three step. Sounds so simple once you've done it. <laughs> it's fucking excruciating to do it. <laughs> Can be at least. But that, yeah, and that's why life is a festival. If if you, I don't know if you have return guests on the show, but I would love to do an entire episode about anger <laughs> and about alchemizing anger in your being. Oh man, it's such a journey, especially I think for um, men of our generation who felt yeah. the sins of the patriarchy and that we can't yeah. be angry. 
or we might then be that aggressive, violent energy. Ooh, that's okay, something yeah. that needs healing. We're, do, we're, we're doing that, brother. Definitely. Yeah. We need to follow up on anger. Yeah, follow, follow up episode about anger. <laughs> yeah, maybe well, maybe you get on my podcast and do anger because that would be, cool. you know, just to be fair. Because I need to do yeah. an anger episode for sure. I, I need yeah, it for yeah. me. Uh, yeah, so. and I've done, I've done a lot of, of uh, work on it. And I also come from a background where anger simply did not exist. Mm, uh, yeah. Grown up without anger, uh, which is basically means constantly suppressing it and not yeah being it, it yeah all. it means the anger is churning inside yes yeah same 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 i'm still working on okay my, the healthy expression wow. of my boundaries cool yeah and I, I gotta i gotta i've been gifted a bunch of really good exercises to allow you to to embrace that anger so let's do that oh, yeah let's do we'll do it on my show we'll do a podcast about alchemizing anger because i think that especially when we're all cooped up with each other in the, in this quarantine, <laughs> yeah. we sure need some practices to alchemize our anger, or we're going to implode or explode. Lord, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, fantastic, Amy Armstrong. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been a pleasure. I learned so much, um, and for you guys listening, I'm pretty sure you learned a lot too. If people want to find you, your current podcast, your upcoming podcast, your online sessions or you know whatever it is that you have to offer uh, the world where can they find you yeah so uh, my favorite place to connect right now is in the life is a festival facebook group so if you like the idea of life being a festival definitely would love for you to check out the podcast where the podcast is most exciting for me is how it translates into this group where many of the guests of the show are in this group and i've just been putting a lot of energy into cultivating that as a beautiful space of, of love and connection. And actually, I've just hired a social media manager for the first time to kind of help me be able to give more to that space and to bring this podcast more in the world. So the Life is a Festival Facebook group is a great place. I'm there a lot. Like It's a great place if you want to connect with me. My show is Life is a Festival all the social media places and things. And I'm launching a new show with a group called Maya out of Denver, a group that's building software for psychedelic therapists. And I am creating a podcast for psychedelic therapists. And I, I've just I've just recorded the first interview. We're very early days of creating it. But what I'm trying to do with that show is create kind of a home base for psychedelic therapists to learn more, to be able to help people more, because I'm just so passionate about the enormous healing potential of psychedelics. And if we can get these out into the mainstream with integrity that that really leans on the wisdom traditions that have been you know, have protected this work in, in terms of ayahuasca and San Pedro, Iboga, these ancient wisdom traditions, and really weave them into a modern context, we're really going to be able to help a lot of people open up to their fullest potential. So yeah, that's my new initiative. So Life as a Festival will continue. That's that's my Eamon Armstrong thing. I love it. And then and then working with Maya for this psychedelic therapist podcast is a is a professional thing and a, and a and a service thing that I'm really deeply passionate and excited about. So, yeah, and that'll all be announced through all my channels. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, wherever. Such a pleasure, Niels. I really yes. really enjoyed this today. I've I've wanted to I've wanted to get real yummy and how i feel about this current crisis and i'm uh, or this current opportunity you know globally and uh, so so happy to have had this this platform this space to do it so thank you thank you thank you it was a pleasure and an honor you guys listening hopefully as always you'll hear me again next week if you have any comments questions emotions sharings whatever feel free to reach out and that's it for this week take care Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you liked the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival, and I'll see you on the dance floor.